G'day, g'day, and welcome back to another episode of the Bradley J Driver Experience, or the Experience as we're calling it now. I guess that's the, the word around town, hot off the press, you've heard it here first. We're rebranding, we're pushing in that direction. A little bit less ego, the show's less about me now, more about the people that are coming on, which is what we want, it's how we like it, and, and why not kick it off that way with a bit of a treat for you all, whether you're listening or watching here today. There's going to be some stories told on, on this podcast, this man is... You know what, I'm, I'm kind of referring to him as similar to a Neapolitan tub of ice cream because you get those three flavours in one. That's right, I'm talking UFC fighter, big wave surfer, bra boy, ladies and gentlemen, from your home, your car or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one and only Richie Vass Vasuli. How are you, brother? <laughs> Good, Brad. Thanks for the intro, mate. I like the uh, Napoleon. I can't pronounce it. Yeah, Napoleon. Mate, I had to. I had to have a look at the pronunciation before I jumped on too. So it's, um, mate, it's a pleasure to have you here. Mate, it's a pleasure to be here. It's funny because, mate, many years ago now, I used to watch the crew on telly with the yeah. old boy. Oh, mate, it was a lot of fun. The crew, uh, very fond memories of that. And it's funny, still staying in contact with a lot of the, you know, the kids, especially in the, in the final season when we did the crew generation two yeah. with, uh, you know, Chris Casaselli, Jamie Malarkey, and Isaac Harbin, the three fighters that I mentored. Uh, are all doing phenomenal things and Macaria, Mark Matthews, you know, one of my closest mates who I was part of the crew with, and Mick Lawrence and Nick Cook, all the guys are involved. Uh, yeah, we also yeah, stay in touch regularly and um, yeah, the crew was a lot of fun, mate. So I'm glad people enjoyed it. You know, like I kind of alluded to in the intro there, it's, it's often that I sit across from someone here on the pod and we talk about, you know, a particular sport or a particular topic of interest for them in their life, but for you, there's so many things. And I think that's what makes you such an interesting character to sit there and talk to and to watch, whether it be on the screen or, you know, listen to on a podcast, because there's so many elements to your life that are extreme. Are your adrenal <laughs> glands shot by now? Or you still got something left in the tank? Yeah, no, I, I guess I, um, yeah, I, I was drawn to things that, you know, sort of get the adrenaline pumping, but I also sort of joke about it too, I was just a victim of small man syndrome, you know, growing up, uh, I'd always put my hand up and say, yeah, I'll do this before really thinking too much, and joke about it so much, it actually been a whole, I did a book a couple of years ago, there's a whole chapter in the book about, you know, my small man syndrome, and, and how it played a part in leading me down the path of things that I, you know, end up turning into a, a profession and career, and uh, yeah, I, I do love challenging myself, and, and um, but there was definitely elements of there of kind of committing to things before I gave it too much thought, and then... Yeah, once I'd commit to it, I'd, I'd try to go on with it. And yeah, they often were uh, things that got, uh, got the heart rate up for sure. I want to talk about all those things today. One thing I'll say is, and I commend you because it's something that I'm fascinated in is sitting across from people who have made a career off the back of the things they love. And you know, for me, you wouldn't know too much of my background, but I used to be a, a greasy real estate agent. <laughs> and I, fe- I just fell out of love with work, right? Yep. And I just felt there was no purpose or passion in work for me anymore. It was literally rocking up to, to do a job. Yeah, ground and all day. And, exactly, yeah. and you know, dragging yourself out of bed at seven in the morning as opposed to now, you know, we were speaking before me and Dicko, shout out to Joey Dixon, the <laughs> man's, you know, live and, and in the presence here in the audience today, the audience of one that is. Um, and we are saying like, I bounce out of bed at 4.30, 4.45 every day now, just keen for the day because I'm doing what I love. Yeah. Like this is my full-time gig, I get to speak to people for a living, to share a story, and there's something about that that it feels like you're really living life. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it does, you know, it sounds a bit cliche these days, you know, like, you know, to say, you know, you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. But it is so true. I, I, um, I could not imagine, you know, getting in my car and commuting to work and being in traffic and just really dreading going to work each day. Uh, it's torture, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that to find things that you enjoy doing that bring you passion, give you purpose. And if you can work out a way to turn them or have them be a part of, of your work and it, I, I think it's it's pivotal it's like it, I think it has to be done to live a happy life you know what I mean to it, otherwise you just seen the days tick over the years tick over and um, before you know it you're, you're lying on your deathbed going fuck I wish I hadn't worked so hard I wish I'd have chased this dream or this goal um, yeah that the idea of that uh, gives me shivers if I was ever to be in that position so I want to try and do those things now and Regrets yeah. a scary thing, eh? Yeah, I mean, I, I listen to a podcast actually um, about a lady called Bronnie Weir. She wrote a book 
um, or did a, a blog that was called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And she Heard really, about this book, yeah. Oh, it's awesome. And it, yeah, it was like a little slap in the face, like, fuck, I don't want to be in that position, you know what I mean? I want to be in a position where, you know, each day I remind myself how grateful, how lucky I am to be doing what I'm doing and, yeah. and not find myself, uh, and who knows when that day will be, but sitting there going, fuck, I wish I hadn't worked so hard and spent more time with my family or my kids and, you know, surf more or chase that dream of martial arts or whatever it may be. And yeah, Bronnie Weir, it's, um, she ended up being working in palliative care for many years. Um, palliative care is when they're, they're not getting out, you know, so their final months, year maybe of, of living, uh, and they are gonna pass away, and she's with them for those, those final stages. And she kept hearing the same themes being brought up by these, you know, her patients who are dying, and they, you know, that, that was some of them, you know. I wish I hadn't worked so hard, I wish I'd chased my dreams, and not be scared to make change, and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, real powerful um, podcast and something that stuck with me. And everyone should Im- implement that now, not wait till it's too late, you know. 100%, I agree with you. Was there ever a stage of your life where there was a Monday nine to five or a, or kind of a regular job? Uh, look, I've, uh, I'm a car player by trade, and I, yep. I was lucky to get into that at a brilliant, like, no, about 19. I, I did my HSC, I left school. All I, all I wanted to do was travel and surf. Uh, I had no uh, you know, aspirations of going to uni or whatnot. I literally just, just wanted to surf and travel the world. Mm-hmm. So um, I got into a few labouring jobs or like, whatever was going. And, and there's a, there a moments in, like, you know, just being a bricky's labour and digging holes. And in, in that sort of six to uh, ten month period, that I was like, I can't do this forever. Like, this is not, you know, digging holes. And it was just, I found that really, uh, really draining, and and uh, just time moved really slow when I was doing some of those labouring jobs. Luckily, uh, was a fox who lives down Albion Park now. Shout out to Waza. He uh, he had just lost his license. He was a carpet layer, and he was like, "Rich, you know, what are you getting paid labouring each day?" And I was like, 90 bucks." And he said, "I'll pay you that just to drive me around, you know, because I just got my fees at the time." So um, I was just a carpet layer chauffeur to start off with, but then uh, <laughs> exactly. it's a great trade. And of course, I picked it up. You know, it was kept me on for ages. We've not been partners, and uh, and uh, yeah, I fell into the trade of lane car, which I do enjoy. You know, it, um, I don't, yeah, I don't not like what I do for, for you know for a crust. Uh, but I feel very fortunate to also have big periods in my life where I've chased dreams and, and done other things as well. But um, yeah, so I, I I know what you mean. Though. I'd have I've taste tasted that that feeling of hating going to work each day, and that was when I was labouring and uh, and not enjoying what I was doing. Um, so I guess maybe subconsciously I'd made a decision there and then to um, make sure that it's not going to be my you know my way of earning a living and, and that don't fall in the trap of, of that kind of you know, yeah. work and lifestyle so yeah um, I still like up today but I've, I've been quite fortunate to have other ways of um, earning money and different things to do um, so yeah I like to keep it changing too and, and mix it up but carpet laying is good it's got to you get paid on what you lay and not by the hour so incentive to get in there work hard get the job yeah. done and go home early so you can surf and train or whatnot is, uh, is, is a good way to live. I like that. Yeah. Let's talk about the scene growing up, Maroubra. Obviously yeah. a big part of your life and has been probably fundamental in everything you've gone on to do, right? I, I heard you on another podcast. I can't remember which one it was, but I was listening and you talking about growing up and you met a lot of your mates through the board riders at Maroubra there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you grew up there from young fella? Yeah, I've always been in some suburbs. Um, we grew up out at Little Bay near La Perouse uh, till I was about 20. But the closest surfing beach was was Maroubra. Uh, that's where I did my nippers as a kid and fell in love with surfing. It's um, yeah, for as far back as I can remember, surfing is all over one of the. My uncle, um, he came across from Manchester. Uh, my mum's from Manchester, and, and my uncle was surf mad. He, he picked up surfing in England and uh, you know found his way over to Australia and lived on the northern beaches at Avalon. And uh, no, he pushed me into you know my first waves on, on a fiberglass board and got me standing. And uh, yeah, I was just hooked. But my mum wasn't that confident in the water and, and taking me down to the beach. So back at Maroubra until I was about 10, I was just riding a bodyboard. And then my mum um, went across to the shops to get a coffee, started talking to Sean, who owned the local uh, sort of milk bar. And she was saying, you know, I want to get my son surfing his fiberglass board down here at Maroubra, but I'm just not confident, you know, having him on this fiberglass, fiberglass board when I'm when it's just me down here. And he goes, go across the, the surf shop and uh, speak to Hair Bear and he'll get him involved in the board riders and then, you know, he'll be set. So that's what she did. She just stumbled across to uh, Maroubra Underground, which is just across the road. Met Hair Bear, Paul Chandler, who uh, lives down in Wollongong now too. He wow. works at Wollongong University, I think he's the dean. Um, and yeah, just signed me up to board riders and that's where I met all the boys. Uh, they all took me under their wing. You know, within a week I was leaving all my clothes and my stuff down at the, at the surf shop so my mum could just drop me down 
at the beach in the morning, picked me up in the Arvo and I was looked after and um, yeah, had a place to keep my stuff and get changed and uh, yeah, that's how I just, you know, I always loved surfing but fell in love with the community and Maroubra itself and uh, I was very fortunate to be taken under the wing. There's plenty of grommet abuse, uh, uh, abuse as well and it wasn't all, you know, <laughs> Uh, rainbows and and, and um, yeah flowers, but it, it was great fun, you know. And then that the board riders, um, it, was, it was a great community, and, and then, yeah, just how I got around all the boys and still living down there today, still part of the board riders, and uh, it's been fantastic. And obviously, then that develops like you like anything in life, you find a find a love for something, and yep. then the the regular wave isn't enough of a rush <laughs> ride, and then you're getting pushed in, and probably being one of those younger guys in the crew. The boys are pushing you in there some some more dangerous territory in some bigger waves. Yeah, and I was a sucker for peer pressure too, you know. Yeah. Like I said, uh, it wouldn't take much to try and convince me to do something stupid. Um, but you know, and, and like it, you know, in most surf communities where you know you know just across the, the hill at Bronny or you find any beach around the world, um, you know, there's a community of surfers and there's there's all that little bit element of um, uh, you know, testosterone and marching uh, us that when the waves get big you're expected to paddle out and, and that was very much alive and well in Maruba and we just happened to have such a strong uh, team of big wave surfers you know uh, the Aberdeen brothers were were, uh, were pretty fearless when the waves got big and making a, you know, a, a big name for himself and especially when I was a, a grommet Kobe was leading the charge you know he very quickly became one of Australia's best big wave servers and then one of the best big wave servers around the world and and just below him chomping on his heels was mark matthews who um you know is a great mate of mine and you know i've always looked up to as an older brother as well and and that's just the name of a few you know it's wayne cleveland uh howie seto rito uh, so many good big wave surfers around uh Maribra. when the waves got big there's always a, a group of guys to to get out there with and encourage me to get out there and and that's what i yeah i did fall in love with you know i, I did I did want to be the next Tom Carroll growing up. I wanted to win world titles and, and chase a dream of competitive surfing. Um, but it was, yeah, in my early teens, I realised that going around doing the, the pro juniors and spending my, my money on, on that uh, avenue of surfing wasn't, wasn't bringing me the joy I'd hoped. And uh, on the you know, other side of the coin, you had Kobe and Mark going around the world, going around Australia on this adventure finding new waves, surfing new slabs and, and, um, and getting a lot of exposure through that in the surf magazines and you know, the other DVDs and um, you know, they were paving a way as, that, as a potential career path. I, um, I was just drawn to that and once I started doing trips with them, um, finding that even though I was you know, shit scared out there that uh, I could handle myself and, and um, you know, yeah, sort of control that fear a little bit and, and still get some amazing waves, it, it was just addictive. and, and then, um, yeah, I just put all my, my small finances and all my energy into chasing waves with, um, with the boys. Talk about fighting fear, and that's the title of the movie that you and yeah. Mark had together. Do you remember charging into your first real big wave and the outcome of that? Well, I wouldn't say it was really charging into my first big yeah. wave. It was <laughs> my first memories of being out there just petrified was um, you know, around the stage where I'd, I was just allowed to bring my fiberglass board back down from Avalon. I was told it had been 10 or 11 and... And my mum was sitting on the beach, and maybe it might have been four to six foot on the beach. Maybe I don't know when I when you're ten, everything looks a lot bigger. It could have been two to three foot. Like <laughs> I'm not sure, yeah. but um, you know, luckily at the south end of Maruba where I was surfing that day, there's a nice rip that runs along the rock, so you can get out the back relatively easy. But once I was out the back, I realised it was a lot bigger than I expected, and uh, now the yeah, I, I was pretty terrified and wasn't quite sure the, that, I, that I knew what to do out there. And, Next year I knew there was a, a, you know, a, a group of lads out there and they all started scrambling towards the horizon. So I was like, fuck, just followed suit, but I was a few feet behind and there's big sets coming and I just got caught inside and cleaned up and washed to the shore. I just dragged my board back to my mum in tears. just like, I was so scared. I got so hammered, didn't, yeah, didn't even catch a wave, just got washed back to the beach. And uh, yeah, that was my first kind of memory of just having that experience of being out in... Um, you know, in an environment where you're just you wanted to be, I wanted to be out there, I wanted to catch a waves, but it was just a little bit, um, a little bit over my head, and, and uh, yeah, I had no experience under my belt, and just put myself in the wrong spot, and uh, yeah, got got washed back to the beach, and that, that happened a few times. I came back to the beach a, a few times. Actually, my first heat in board riders when I joined uh, yeah, the the River Border Association, um, I paddled out, and again, it was kind of uh, you know maybe four foot, maybe a touch bigger. And I couldn't get out the back. I just couldn't get my way out the back. I just getting, getting washed ashore. And that was an, another 
you know, uh, experience that ended in tears. I just came back, but all the boys uh, patted me on the back because I, I was, yeah, by a few years, the youngest kid in, in the uh, in the cadets. Uh, the, you know, the majority of guys were like 14 to 16. I was like 11. Uh, but I got like, yeah, a lot of pats on the back come up just for, for trying and yeah, kept paddling for that 20 minutes. But uh, yeah, so I felt like, yeah, I got I did take a lesson out of that. There was, uh, even though I didn't get away, but yeah, there was a, uh, yeah, they, 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 you keep giving it a, a nudge and, and, and uh, yeah, the boys flipped into a positive even though I didn't get away, but I was something to be proud of, so yeah. I could be getting this wrong here, but there's a wave, I think, which featured a lot in, in the crew and a lot of the stuff that I've watched with you guys. It's not far from Maribra Beach. Is it Cape Fear? Yeah, so it's where the, the Red Bull had their, their comp there a few yep. years ago. Uh, they call it Red Bull Cape Fear. It's called Cape Salander, Pikers Hole. We called it ours when we first started surfing it because there's a bunch of bodyboarders surfing it. And uh, I, I just mentioned it jokingly um, when I was talking to some surf magazines. Like, oh, it's ours now, and, and that's stuck as well. So that's a name that we've always referred to it as well. But, uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal wave. It's, just, it's on the southern headland of Botany Bay, uh, where when you get the right swell, it comes out of really deep water and hits a, hits a super shallow rock ledge, and, and, and then just yeah, unloads. And it's, um, it's deadly, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty unique in that um, it's got a, yeah, it breaks super shallow. It's right in front of um, you know the cliff face there. So if you were to fall early, you not only do you get dragged across that shallow shelf, you get bounced up against the cliffs as well, and uh, you got backwash coming off those cliffs as well. So sometimes you think uh, you've done everything perfect and you sit in the barrel, and all you need to do now is get spat out, and the backwash hits you and, and sends you cartwheeling. So um, yeah, it's a phenomenal wave. You can get some of the best barrels out there for sure. Um, yeah, so we we found. I sort of started surfing that when I was about 18, 19, so you know, almost 20 years ago now. And, um, yeah, pretty much try to hit, hit it every swell since. And um, it's a phenomenal wave, and it's, uh, yeah, it's been some amazing times. Have you ever had bad moments out there? Yeah, well, I'm just coming off shoulder surgery now. I had a full shoulder reco in, um, in September. I surfed yeah. out there in August of last year, and uh, we had a really good winter, actually. We had a lot of East Coast lows, and we got the swells we need, which is, you know, you need as well, you know, in that four to six foot plus range, anywhere anywhere between 15 foot, you know, four to six foot to 15 feet. And ideally you want a lot of east in that direction as well as well. And um, yeah, I was stoked on that Sunday that we surfed in the morning. It was kind of small and not exactly how we'd hoped, but we had a fun little paddle session out there. It wasn't quite big enough to tow. And, uh, but that afternoon, my phone started going off and Tim and Ipen was there filming saying the swell's definitely kicking like it, it was predicted to. Um, and all the boys from Cronulla who were surfing, like Kip and Kurt, um, they were out there, but they, they were just paddling, they didn't have a ski, and, and there was sets starting to come through that you couldn't paddle into. So I, uh, I talked on the phone to Josh Koo, I'd surfed it with that morning, and he's got a jet ski and said, let's get over there, you know. It seems it sounds like it's really starting to turn on. Um, we did, and we were only, only guys with a ski out there, so we were lucky enough just to have a um, pick of all the big sets. And uh, we had a ball all afternoon, it was getting dark, Last one before dark, of course. Me and Josh were trying to be gentlemen. Like, you had the last one? No, you had the last one. And I said, all right, give me one more. And uh, that last one pulled in. And as the swell got bigger, which it went from the sort of four to six foot range at three o'clock to like 5.30, it was definitely in that 12 foot plus range and had gone a little bit more south in the direction. And uh, very last wave, I sort of pulled in. Like I said, thought, I thought I'd done all the hard work. And then uh, the wave kind of ran off the reef a bit and just clamped and the lip landed on my shoulder and um, yeah, blew the shoulder apart. And, yeah, so I've had a few few injuries out there. Another one was when I fell and uh, I was rolling around underwater and the nose of my board hit me in the throat and um, yeah, gave me a pretty nasty hole in my throat, which uh, I didn't think too much of at the time until I got to the doctors and they said you're pretty lucky to, to actually get out of the water. It had, had it been anything sharper than the nose of your board, you, yeah, your carotid artery would have been severed and you, you wouldn't have got out of the yeah, water. Jesus. So I went pretty white then, but yeah, there's been a heap, heap of injuries out there. You know, Kobe Graham from Bronny broke his neck. Um, there's been heaps of, yeah. Uh, Kobe Gaines is probably you know, by far the worst. I've seen Jughead go down in the um, in the Red Bull Cape Fear contest when there was that huge, huge um, sort of nor'easter swell. He got a heap of staples in his head, and if it wasn't for the Water Patrol and and um, you know, Ryan Hill would have been there right on the scene, that he could have been in a far worse position because he was unconscious and uh, yeah, like I said, had a gaping hole in his head. So it uh, yeah, it's it handed out its, its fair share of beatings. I can imagine, I can imagine. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you get copper beating in the water and you're also copper beating in the ring, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and, well, the and aim is to not copper beating in either, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to, yeah. But unfortunately... It just um, comes part, part and parcel, parcel yeah. Of, of both, of both uh, yeah, fields. But. How did you get into the fighting? 
Um, like because you, you probably weren't scared to throw them growing up. I can imagine. Well, yeah, I wanted to be able to handle myself growing up. Like yeah. I said, growing up in, in you know, Maroubra in the, in the in the mid '90s, the early 2000s, um, it was a very different landscape to what it is now. But I think every young fella growing up in that kind of t- testosterone charged environment, you want to think you know how to handle yourself if if um, if stuff turns pear shaped. I always loved training. You know, I was a kid. I used to love cross country. I loved playing footy, um, and I always like I always I used to do well in cross country, and I used to I used to do well in nippers. So I used to love the idea of, you know, if you stay fit, you can achieve things, you know. And um, so going into my teens, I used to love training. Kobe was a big advocate of training and staying fit, uh, you know, running the beach. Boxing was a big thing as well. We had Ronnie Reardon, uh, who was an older guy who fought for Australian titles. It was a great boxer. So uh, boxing was a big part of growing up in Maribyrn. Kurt Barham, he also, you know, fought professionally and fought for Australian titles and uh, was a phenomenal boxer. So... It, that was always, and I, and I loved boxing. It was I, um, I loved it, one, to learn the skill of boxing, so for self-defense, be able to handle yourself, and two, just to stay fit as well. So when Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu sort of was introduced to Maroubra, I think in the um, kind of early 2000s by Bruno Pano and, and Alex Pratt, um, yeah, we were just all over it, you know. It was just another element of staying fit, but learning a, a skill you know, in combat sports. Um, yeah, when heaps of the boys just got, got involved. So it, it was a, a great atmosphere to be learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with all your mates, you all learning together. We all started competing straight away in the in the New South Wales Federation Cups. And uh, yeah, it was great. So I just, um, that led me to MMA, you know, because again, I, I'd always, rather, whether I really thought about it too much, but, um, you know, as soon as I started boxing, oh, do you think you ever have a boxing fight? You know, without even thinking, yeah, I'd, I'd fight, you know, just being my, you know, ego getting away and just, you know, like I said, I. And that small man syndrome, trying to prove myself all the time, and that little chip on your shoulder. Um, you know, that was the same when I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I started competing, and then you know, MMA, uh, MMA started getting on the scene. You know, a little bit with those very early, uh, you know, VHS tapes of the yeah. UFC with Royce Gra- uh, Gracie winning, and you know, all those crazy fights in those early days. How, how um, they were matching people up back in the day made no sense. No though. sense at all. Yeah, you know, there were, you know, there were a few rules, but very limited rules. You know what I mean? And um, uh, so yeah, when, when I was like, would get asked about that, you, you would have tried doing that because we were doing a bit of grappling and obviously doing boxing. To me, that's all M- MMA was yeah. basically, you know, a bit of striking on your feet and a bit of grappling on the ground. Uh, yeah, I, I was quick to say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And, uh, even though the thought of it terrified me, and I shit myself uh, just thinking about it. Um, yeah, I sort of threw my hat in the ring, and then, and then once I did, I, I, I um, yeah, I sort of wanted wanted to sort of see it through, and yeah, I did, and I started basically. I fought. Had my first MMA fight in 2006, and um, had no idea how I'd perform if I just, you know, freeze when that door closed of the cage, and then just get the shit punched out of me, or if I could remember a little bit of my uh, my training and, and try and get the job done. But yeah, yeah it was um, yeah, it's been a blessing in disguise, to be honest. Because had I not found uh, you know martial arts in, in boxing, and thank God the Brazilian fellows, you know, Bruno and Alex. You know, moved to Maroubra, um, you know, when I was about 18 and introduced us to, to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it, it, it provided me uh, such a positive avenue uh, and provided direction, discipline at a time that, looking back now, was, was very needed, you know what I mean? I was kind of going off the rails a little bit, thought I could burn the wick at both ends and whatever I did on the piss didn't have any consequence or whatnot and, and yeah. um, it gave me that kind of, yeah, that avenue for a little bit of, yeah, like I said, discipline and, um, yeah like committing to something you know and and having that in my life was very um was needed for sure yeah you yeah. talk about that and <clears throat> one thing i've noticed is the bjj is really popular in surf culture yeah it's a big and crossover yeah. really big crossover yeah. and i think it probably comes from obviously in brazil surfing and obviously their home sport of bjj are exactly the real loves and passions of a lot of their residents and their people there yeah but you speak about it giving you some direction and i guess some stability in life. Yeah. Those times, obviously, in your younger years were a little bit crazy and growing up in that scene. Yeah. Do you feel like things could have gone completely differently if you didn't find BJJ? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It was, um, you know, between, I guess, um, you know, starting to party and stuff around 15 through to, like, your early 20s. Um, you know, I, I, I was drawn right into that lifestyle, you know. I... I 
I love going out with my mates and having a good time. And um, you know, growing up in Maroubra, fighting and, and violence was was no big deal. You know, it was very much as a part of of, uh, of the life down there. And it was a very different time too. There's no like cameras and uh, you know mobile phones that capture everything. So you, you 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 could get away with a lot more. You know, people say they made it more, I guess, allowable in a way to to get into blues on this because it was the repercussions weren't as as immediate and, and, yeah. and as as uh, as heavy as they are now. Now, times have changed now. You can't do a whole lot without without being recorded and getting in trouble, which is great because it's not a it's a it's a stupid way to to live and it's a silly mentality to have. But um, that was the case when we were growing up. Um, so I found myself going out partying and getting into trouble and getting into fights. Uh, like I said, I thought I thought nothing had consequence and that I could burn the wicket both ends until, of course, I found myself in front of the court uh, with assault charges um, and then a serious one stemming from the the Gold Coast. That I was extradited back to, to Southport um, to face charges of grievous bodily harm, and and that coinciding with me, um, you know, finding BJJ and starting to fight in mixed martial arts and fight professionally, also having some success in my surfing career as well, um, you know, chasing big waves and having some support off sponsors, um, things were doing really well, and this was like a moment and a slap in the face where. Um, I realised if I was to keep living the lifestyle I was living, where I thought I could get away with it and there was no consequence, and uh, you know I was living that reckless lifestyle, the the goals and I guess um, you know the the things I was hoping to accomplish, both in surfing and, and martial arts, would be quickly you know pulled from underneath my feet. And um, definitely, yeah, yeah, I I, I, you know, I was looking at a potential uh, you know jail time for the previous body harm, so I'd just come off uh, a good behaviour bond for a previous. Assault charge when I when I was, when I you know fucked up and and got in trouble on the Gold Coast. Um, so it's quite. So I guess it paints a little bit of a picture of where I was at at that stage. You know, I was in my early twenties. Um, yeah, not giving a fuck about a lot. Didn't think that. Uh, yeah, anyone would ever come back to bite me. Um, but obviously that's that's a very immature and naive way to, to look at life. And I and I was I was quickly changed by that whole experience of going through court and and potentially. Um, like I said, having everything um, you know swept from under my feet, but it was jujitsu, martial arts that gave me that that discipline, that responsibility, and that structure in my life that I um, you know I I needed at that time, and I could fall back on and use that as a way of keeping my head clear, getting through the court case, and then and then um, yeah, having that there as a way of focusing my energy, you know, and, and that's and that's what I did and. I, you know, I try to stay true to my the goals that I'd given myself in, in mixed martial arts and you know, and jiu-jitsu and, and competing in both and also surfing. I wanted to uh, pay back the sponsors that, were helped, that had, uh, had supported me and backed me as well. I wanted to um, you know, go out there and do the best I could surfing-wise because uh, they stood by me through through the um, through the court case and yeah, it was uh, it was a pivotal moment in in uh, in, in my growing up and although it was like probably like the lowest point and like I was really ashamed of, of uh, putting my family through that, ashamed and uh, um, putting the victim through that as well, you know, the, the yeah, I mean, yeah, really not not proud of it, of any of it at all, but having not experienced that, um, I, I kind of fear something similar maybe would have happened a bit further in life and maybe yeah. the, the consequences and the cost might have been a, a, lot, a lot greater, you know, so. Well, it's a catalyst for real change, isn't it? And and one thing that I've found is I've had a couple of fighters on the show now and, you know, Muay Thai fighters, MMA fighters, yeah. a real mix. And you speak to all of these guys and they say that as you progress in professional fighting, it's almost like the better you get, the humbler you get in most cases. And, sure. and it's kind of like that humbleness and knowing that your confidence and your skill set is there. You know, you jokingly said earlier that small man syndrome that you kind of had, that charge, that ego yeah, yeah. growing up. That kind of removes itself almost because you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Actually, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, and uh, any martial art across the board, I think, really is really humbling. I think no more so than jujitsu. You know, you mm. walk on the mat, you know, like a young twenty-one-year-old, chest pumped out, thinking, you know, you're going to wipe the mats with everyone, and you get submitted by, a, you know, a lady, fifty-kilo hairdresser. You know, she pushes you to sleep. Is there's no more humbling experience <laughs> than that. And. Uh, now, I, I was really blessed with great instructors like you know, the guys I mentioned earlier, Bernardo Treco, who I'm catching up with today while I'm down here, um, Matty Gardner, my striking coach. I mean, I, I've got a, 
I've had so many people help me out along the way, and there's one common thread that they all are humble guys, and and uh, and if you don't get that ego and check it, you know, relatively quickly while you're in that gym, you sort of don't last real long, and um, yeah, it's the more you develop as a martial artist, I think that's a part of the process. You start to realise as you learn more skills, um, you know where and when you know, to apply them, and if you want to, you know, get in there and and test yourself and you have that that uh, that drive uh, you know, I guess to fight and you do it in the right uh, arena whether it be on the mats or in the cage or in the ring or where it may be and, and you know you don't you don't do it out in the pub or at a party and that's uh, that was definitely my case. You know, once I started taking MMA seriously I would definitely able to fight outside of um, you know, outside of the gym or outside of you know the ring. Um, yeah, you know, it was that that turning point, that court case and that myself taking those things seriously that yeah I haven't found myself in trouble since and it's also getting the drinking in check as well you know I still yeah love to have a beer and a good time but not to the the point where I was doing it you know and um yeah so grateful for those experiences like I said it, it takes yeah it was tough because the more the as you get older too I really yeah the, the, what happened in the Gold Coast was a, just in a nutshell was a drunken sort of pub fight um, and then in, in amongst that pub fight I hit a bloke who said he wasn't involved um, and, uh, and had to go back and face the, yeah, face the music and, and thank God the, the, the judge for, it, for what it was and I didn't, yeah, I, uh, I, I pled guilty but um, you know, I didn't, didn't receive a sentence and, but it was that, that wake up call and yeah, really regretful of having to, you know, of, of that whole experience but very grateful for the, the, for the lessons it's, it's, it's left with me so yeah, now uh, Without that, I don't know if had I would have achieved or you know the things I I, I, I have in my fighting career and surfing career and, and like you mentioned before the crew and those kind of things, all these positive things have come off the back of that change, you know. As they say in life, you win or learn, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, it like I say, it's sometimes it's easy to say it and not so easy to put into practice when you're going through yeah. a tough loss. But yeah, it's very true, very true. Talk to me about the progression from, obviously, it's one thing to start professionally fighting. It's another thing to start fighting under the UFC banner. Yeah. And for anyone from Australia, especially the time that you broke into the UFC, yep. we're starting to see a little bit more of it now with the Anzacs, you know. Yeah. A lot of guys from NZ, a couple of guys from Australia who are doing really well. And, you know, for yeah, us, we've got a Volko hometown hero. Here, exactly. Um, Mr. Volkanovski. and lucky enough to have, or to be beat up a few times with Volko. In yeah. The gym, well, you that? guys would have been fighting same weight class, right? So. Well, kind of. We are with kind of similar builds, but Volko came from came down in weight from, you know, from middleweight originally yeah. and when we were trained we together we were the front rower yeah know, exactly Gong, yeah. exactly so he was like I think he was just coming out of fighting at water weight I was fighting I fought from flyweight through to lightweight but at that time I'm, uh, I think I was fighting at flyweight in the UFC so um, yeah but he's just as strong as a bull so regardless of you know, the similarity in size he's just a monster on the mats uh, and inspiring um, Great so wrestler too, eh? Phen yeah, phenomenal wrestler. Uh, phenomenal across the board, as you can see. You, know, you don't become a world champion, beat Max yeah. away twice uh, for being average anywhere, you know. Um, but yeah, like you said, Australia, New Zealand are on fire at the moment. We've got a huge card tomorrow with a few of the Anzacs on it. You know, Rob Whitaker, our first you know, undisputed yeah. Australian champ. Um, yeah, and when I was signed to the UFC, when I first started fighting MMA, to be signed to the UFC wasn't even an option in my weight classes. I was. I was fighting. I was a, I was a band of weight, you know. I was walking around 66 kilos, fighting at 62. But I'd fly, I'd, I'd fight up at featherweight, uh, you know. I fought in the smashes at, at lightweight as well, you know, just to get the experience and, and stay active as a fighter because there wasn't that many opportunities yeah. as a, a lighter fighter in Australia to stay active. So you had to bounce around weight classes a bit. Um, yeah, and then obviously the UFC finally brought in those those lighter weight classes, and that's where I realised, wait a minute, there could be an opportunity here. You know, what I mean, if I put my head down and and um, you know, get a good record behind behind myself, and then yeah, then the smashes popped up, and yeah, that was a phenomenal experience. Didn't get didn't quite get the results I was hoping, but uh, you know, I was able to I guess put myself on the map when it came to the UFC and get my foot in the door. Um, and I told the guys at the UFC that I couldn't make flyweight. I hadn't fought a flyweight at that stage, but I knew that was a, 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 a or the newest of the weight classes. Um, so I made it aware to them that I could, I'm happy to make flyweight if they're looking to build that division. Um, I left the house, got a few uh, yeah, nice wins outside the house and then the phone you know, rang and they wanted me as a flyweight. So I was over the moon. Talk to me about that house experience. 
mate, it was, um, yeah, a little surreal, to be honest. It, it was a great experience. It wasn't uh, one I'd jump out again, necessarily. Yeah. I, what season? It was, okay, I, think, I think it was in the late teens, like 18 or 19. It was tough, wasn't it? It was because, tough. Yeah. So, was, um, so, so that's the old, for anyone listening who doesn't know, um, if, you, if you remember earlier days, UFC, or you know, at least in the last 10 years, the Ultimate Fighter was a big part of that progression and that journey into the UFC and yeah. has rightfully been the path for some of the biggest stars in UFC history. Absolutely. And I now mean, it's more so like the Contender Series, it seems, so has taken that yeah. sort of top spot for the way to get in. Well, I did, I've heard whispers they're still trying to do one, I think. I, I heard uh, we made Masvidal and Covington, or, or you know, they're trying to do this. So it's not completely... Um, I, think the, I think they're just spacing it out now a lot more. Well, the only reason I think it hasn't been as successful as it used to be is just network television. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I think is the issue where it, most it, of the other ones... Really did, it played a huge part in getting the UFC more mainstream, you know, the success of that, you know, the Stephen Bonner, Forrest Griffin series... The first, first ever UFC fight I watched. Yeah, right. Maybe yeah, a massive yeah. Forrest Griffin <laughs> yeah. fan, eh? Guys yeah. are nutcase. He's a nutcase. But it's uh, yeah. So we we uh, you know Australia um, was given the opportunity to host uh, a team uh, of fighters from the UK. Um, the, the divisions were lightweight and welterweight. Uh, I applied as a lightweight. I was stoked to get selected. And uh, yeah, in the house for six weeks, uh, living with your opponents. Uh, yeah, no, it's just a series of like. You fight and you get eliminated because you stay in the house so you can still keep training with the training partners and uh, you eventually fight your way to a final spot and the people who win the, 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 that final fight uh, are given an, uh, a contract to the UFC. And it was also like, you know, you always feel like if you put in good performance, you might be, be able to get the contract anyway. Um, but it was a pretty tough season our season. I don't think the only guys who got the contracts in the UFC were the, the final winners or maybe the guys who made the final as well. Um, yeah, I got the semi-final and got beat in the semi-final and uh, yeah it's, it's still sort of motivation though, to keep you know training hard and trying to get some, some wins under my belt to, to make it back in the UFC at a more preferred weight class for myself and uh, yeah it's just, it's just a real environment to be in you know just all you see is the house in the gym house in the gym for six weeks straight there's no contact outside world no newspapers no music no television no books to read no nothing so it's a little uh, pressure cooker environment made for drama, you know, which yeah. I guess is what they're, they're, they're aiming yeah. for. Um, yeah, but you definitely felt homesick and, uh, yeah, it's a, it was a pretty gruelling uh, training schedule that George Soropoulos, you know, uh, had us try to adhere to. He's pretty old school in his, uh, his approach to training and, uh, yeah, it was tough. And um, But yeah, I took, I took a, um, a lot of you know, great takeaways from the whole experience. Um, it was, it was a tough, grueling six weeks, though. Yeah. Definitely. You know, we talk about success, and you've obviously had success in many areas of your life now, especially with your fighting and your surfing, and, you know, on telly and all that stuff, too. And the thing that really strikes me is if you look at the crew that you grew up with, no pun intended yeah. there, um, you guys have all really done big things in your life. Do you think it comes from that mentality of just charging hard at every opportunity that was there? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I think so. Because it's all, rare all, to see that. Like the whole the whole group, you know yeah, what I mean, has really yeah, done got, well for themselves. Yeah, well, I, I do feel very lucky to have been surrounded by by so many. Um, you know, like at the time, we didn't. You know, you're you're young kids. You don't really realize, but, but guys who were driven to succeed in in whatever they had chosen. You know, from NRL to their, their profession, whether it be yeah. law or you know physio or, or building a business in the in Did a trade. Did you with Johnny me? Sutton? Eh? Yeah, me, Johnny Sutton, like Rennie Matua and like Leader Matua, you know, Bobby Falloon, all grew up together. All guys who have made top level NRL, play for their country. Um, you know, and they got mates. Yeah, who just even those guys who um, you know have built a business in their trade. You know, it's, it's something that I've admired and, and uh, so that drive to succeed. And you also got a lot of support down from you know the group of guys that we grew up with. If you put your hand up and said, oh, you know, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be, you know, play, you know, in the NRL, boys are going to back you. Go fucking oath, mate. Go for it. You know, train hard. You know, don't get on the piss with it. You know, like, do what you got to do to to achieve it. But if you put your hand up, say, I want to be a knucklehead and get in the blues and carrying like a pork chop, you're going to get support for that as well. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. sweet, let's go get a beer, let's go. You know, yeah. so it was like, you had to sort of. Um, I guess looking back, you know, it was all kinds of influences down there, and I guess. Being older now, look, I wish I'd have t- put more emphasis on different influences and not being caught up in, in others. You know, I would have had probably a, a less bumpy road to, to get to where I, you know, wanted to get to. But that that's life, and uh, yeah, I, 
we were very lucky to, to have a lot of positive, you know, influences and role models uh, growing up down there. You know, like I said, <coughs> there are equally as many, um, I guess, stories that aren't so positive. A lot of mates have gone to jail and yeah. made poor choices through, you know, drinking and drugs and party life, which yeah, you, I guess you don't. They're not as known about, of course, as you know, of the, course. the NRL success or, or surfing success, but. Yeah, the, yeah, just as much opportunity down there to, to make dumb decisions and uh, and go down a not so um, you know shiny path. But um, you know, very lucky to to have a lot of lot of guys that you know, surround myself or grew up with that um that were driven to, to push themselves. And it kind of rubbed off, kind of like in a I was never sat down to lecture so much by my mates, but just by watching them do well. And that was particularly in that period where I was going through the court case and you know Macari de Souza. Mark Matthews, two of my closest mates, were just out there achieving things in their careers, what they had set out to do, you know, and and um, you know, they, yeah, they wouldn't so much sit down and lecture me on what I should and should be doing, but they just got on about their day, and yeah, achieving the things that they were, were you know, out out to uh, out to achieve, and and they were, I'd, I'd just I'd watch that, you know, and go fuck, what am I doing here? So I spend all this money on lawyers, you know, going to court. You know, just working every day, laying car, but just to pay like you know, lawyers' bills. I want to, you know, get out there trying to chase some of the biggest yeah. ways in the world. I want to get back to martial arts. I want to compete and win titles. Uh, you know, and by those guys just going out there and doing their thing, you know what I mean? Um, it served as motivation for me to, to, you know, get on that bandwagon with them. You know what I mean? And and uh, yeah, so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of those influences. And like I said, had I just said fuck this, I'm just gonna go down and pile me in the piss and just drown me sorrows. I would have had just as many mates to join me doing that as well and that would have just been a you know a, a rabbit hole of more trouble and a slippery slope to to uh yeah to not so positive outcomes you know mate 100 percent. and you know everyone's faced with that decision at life i you know i hear that and i think does it ever run through your mind not from a point of regret but a point of almost counting your lucky stars that if you'd never ventured across the marubra like if you'd spent you know, the earlier years of your life in, in the middle of Western Sydney or on the other side of the beach, that maybe the life you're living, just none of these stories are there to tell. You don't have those highlight reels and even those low moments to learn from. Yeah, look, I I don't... I haven't really invested too much thought into what really would have happened had I lived in a, you know, away from the beach. And, like, I know... I, Man, I, I don't... I try to be, like, optimistic about it, but I don't think... It would have fared too well because I was always that kid with plenty of energy who like loved to impress his mates. Was a sucker for peer pressure, and the, and without having the beach there, which was such a positive outlet, and I sit down my uncle was a surfer, I did nippers, it was something to focus that that, that, that enthusiasm and energy into. I'm pretty sure I would have found myself in uh, in in uh, in, a, in a bit of strife, you know. And now, I, I, even today, I could never live away from the coast. You know, I've just I was That's so hard, grateful for yeah for growing up around the beach. Um, like the ocean to me is such a place of like therapy and and uh, calm and it's uh yeah and just, and it's a place where I love to be where it be surfing spear fishing fishing hanging out with my mates it, the, the culture down there is is amazing and uh yeah I could never see myself living away from from the ocean you know and uh so grateful that that was my backyard growing up because uh, had I not had that um yeah who knows I don't know I don't know what I would have fallen into what I, what I would have my passions would have been. Had I grown up at the back of Penrith, or who knows? Yeah. Not, not, not to say there's nothing out there positive. You know, so I'm sure there is. I can see I've got lots of mates who live out that way and uh, you know, have, have great lives and stuff. But uh, but for me myself, I, I don't know what it would have been. You know what I mean? Maybe motocross or something. But I, I, I don't know yeah. how it would end yeah, up. Yeah, I can see that. It's something extreme. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, I can, But um, you know yeah, what? Though, say, the thing that strikes me is listening to you talk about how all of these passions formed in your life it was really community based and i don't know if it's you know if it's a time that you grew up in where you kind of you stayed in your community you know you had your mates in your community and most people were close where i feel like we don't really have that in today's society for like the young fellows growing up and and sort of coming into that adulthood there's not really real senses of communities where you stay there you you grow your passion from there that's where you guys all come from and you, you spend every day together whether it's surfing fighting playing yeah. footy whatever it is shout maybe. out to tony hawk riding past the studio <laughs> yeah. at the moment maybe yeah i i agree i think as a young bloke you, you had this um 
this sense of wanting to be a part of something, you know, I mean, be a part of a brotherhood or a community and, and, and growing up in Ruby, it, it definitely served that, you know, like the board riders was like, you know, they, they, they run one comp a month through winter and I just, I could not wait for that day to come, you know, I mean, I just love being down there, the boys are writing off, you know, you have a social, you surf, you, you know, try and do best in your heat and, uh, mate, it was just, just being part of that community was, was, um, was, was such a draw, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think you're right, whether it be like a footy club or whatever it may be, you know, as a young fella being part of that tribe and, and being surrounded by peers and guys your same age, older men who you can look up to and, and hopefully can uh, give you some direction and some good influence. Um, I think, I think it, it, it's, it's primal, you know what I mean? I think it's how we've evolved by, by going off on hunts with the older guys, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was re really important for myself to be part of that and I was just very fortunate that Maruba had such a strong you know, community and that sense of brotherhood and um, yeah, I think unfortunately these days you know, that times are changing so much and it's getting a lot more like insular, I guess people keep themselves a lot more, which is yeah. unfortunate, but yeah, uh, I, I am seeing a shift now like that people are trying to put an emphasis back on that, you know what I mean, and guys my, my age or older, we trying to make it make sure like we can you know, get up real early on, on a one say weekday uh, or or um, one day of the weekend and have a real early surf you now because now everyone's busy but trying to make time to all bond back together and connect and i got it's mates in, yeah in south australia just doing like men's groups now trying to create those little times where you can bond back with your, with your mates and do something whether it be a go for a training session or a surf and yeah i think it's uh yeah it is you know i guess lacking in the younger generation these days um it's vital, you know. I mean, I think it is. So, well, that's how I met this bloke, the Active Boys Run Club. Well, there you go. Yes, I mean, these you know clubs I mean? and these, yeah, get around a couple of lads just running, and yeah. it sort of community grows. And yeah, you make new mates, and you make mates who have got common interests and, and yep. similar passions, and yeah, and you're driving each other to achieve things. And it's great, you need community in your life. And even when things aren't going so good, you got you got people there to talk to, you know, they might be going through something similar, or might, they might just be good at listening and just and just. Give that opportunity to get something off your chest, you know. Like, yeah, I got a no. Yeah, so it, it, it's so important to have that, you know. I think in in terms of everything, like just for you to feel motivated and try to achieve the things you want to achieve in life, but also for for guys. And we all know how prevalent now mental health is with young men in particular. But I mean, across the board, it, it's it's run rife. But I think these kind of groups and these communities serve a huge purpose in. Um, in, in helping with that, you know what I mean? And bringing awareness and, and giving guys an, a, an, an avenue to, to chat and talk. and Definitely. Yeah, so, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. They're super, super valuable to, to a society as a whole. With all your travels and everything that you've been able to, to do and experience within, I guess, your career or within just life in general, if you had to go back and sort of select a highlight reel, what would be some of those big moments that... You know, maybe the, the absolute peaks, peaks of life, peaks of careers, where it's almost pinch yourself moments. Yeah, like, I, um, yeah, I've been yeah, really lucky to, to travel. And of course, you know, wanting to chase big waves and, and uh, make that as a career, you know, you're sort of obviously drawn to all these big wave destinations around the world, which, are, which, is, uh, which is such a, a sense of adventure and so much fun. And so many fond trips of a lot of them just traveling around Australia, trying to find new, new big waves, you know what I mean? Because uh, you know, trying to get exposure through the surf media, if you could find a new big wave, it was yeah, you know, it was all of a sudden breaking news, and you got a lot more exposure. So those trips, not knowing where you were going or what you're going to find, were um, you know, with a bunch of your best mates, were amazing. But one one trip in particular to Tahiti with Mark Matthews, uh, Macari D'Souza, uh, you know, Mick Lawrence from the crew, we like we just. It was just uh, it was for the crew. So I was there with our best mates, and uh, we just got. Uh, we chased a spoil there uh, and it was just four days of amazing surf you know like between the sort of 10 to 20 foot range for, for those three to four days was that Chopu? yeah we surfed Chopu and um, we just got some amazing waves it was just you know in, in an island paradise it was beautiful and um, and I was there not only with my best mates you know, who were involved in the crew but some of my best mates you know in the big wave surfing community from around the world you know guys from Hawaii and Queensland and Brazil and you know the whole sort of big wave surfing community from around the world were there for this world because it was such a, a, a you know, phenomenal forecast. That's one I was look back on and go, fuck, I was, I was forever grateful for that experience, you know, because I got some yeah. of the best waves of my life. Lucky to come out of it unscathed, you know, there's a few few bumps and bruises, but 
I mean, in one day, it was like, it was like you know, I was involved in four trips to the hospital, yeah, taking guys to get stitches or broken bones or whatnot. So it was a pretty eerie, um, you know, eerie sort of scenario in terms of, you know, it was very real and prevalent. On the back what, of your mind the whole time. Yeah, it was, it was constantly there. So, uh, but that was, just, when I look back at photos of that trip or see footage of it, I'm just like, fuck, that was, can't believe that happened, yeah. That was just such a, a crazy, we only there for four or five days, like just hit, just there for the swell, but just to sit in paradise, have a beer after surfing, you know. Some amazing ways, you know, you, with your heart in your throat the whole time, uh, and eat beautiful food, hang out with some you know, great guys from around the world. It was, it was pretty special. So, yeah, feel grateful to have the, have those experiences. Is life very similar for you now? Like, obviously, you know, a few years on from things like the crew, and you're obviously surfing and martial arts is still a massive part of your life. Are the new elements, the things that are changing, what's evolving? Yeah, well, you know, I've, you know, I'm become a father now. So my daughter Grace just turned four a couple of weeks ago. So that's been a obviously a huge change um, and with that the responsibilities of life have sort of been kicked in a little bit more you know, I, just, I mentioned my shoulder injury last year I had a, had a full shoulder read go it was the first time I've had a an injury that's required proper surgery you know I mean it put me yeah. on the sideline for an extended period of time and, and it's the first time I've had that when I've, I felt like I've actually had real responsibility now I've had a mortgage to pay I've got a child to look after and all that kind of stuff so that that's changed you know like things I've got different priorities now, no, definitely. Um, and you know, I, I fought last year, so the year before last, I made my professional boxing debut, which was, was great. And I'd love to jump back in the cage, but to try to find the time, you know, that 25 hours, 30 hours a week to yeah. commit to, to training for mixed martial arts. Now with these other responsibilities, I, I feel that's, it is a very selfish lifestyle you gotta live, but by all means, you have to, you know what I mean? You can't go in there yeah. underdone, and you gotta make sure your preparation has been on point. And I respect the sport enough to know what it takes to uh, to jump back in there and, and what I've got to sort of commit to. So like things like that have changed. Whereas, you know, bef- you know, in my 20s, before I became a father and you know, had a mortgage or whatnot, and you know, it was before I was married, uh, you, I could do things at the drop of a hat, you know? Yeah. I could take risks, I could travel around the world, say yes to a fight in three weeks notice, none of that really, you know, it was, you know, it was pretty pretty free in that, in that respect. I could just, um, yeah, now everything's will be a bit more calculated and a bit more thought out. I'm not the only one that um, is is to consider in these decisions. So like that, just oh, that's just part of life when you when you take on these uh, these roles of you know, parenthood and and um, and the rest of it. You know, like so now there's a bit more emphasis on work and and um, yeah, earning money. But I still love to surf, love to travel, love to live a little spontaneous when I can, and still chase that adrenaline and uh, enjoy life to the fullest. You know, now it's just got to be a little bit more calculated, I guess. Yeah, like I said. 100 percent, 100 and you got a smile on your face when you talk about it, mate. So you can see, yeah, well, family, all that stuff, big part of your life now, and it's good to see. Yeah, it's unreal. It's unreal. Like, look, I wouldn't change anything. It's, uh, yeah, she's magic, my uh, graceful little daughter, and, um, but, yeah, I, I, you know what? And I guess with this shoulder injury, I was like, people ask me, you're gonna still go do these, you know, surf these waves, and you know, do this now. You got other things to think about, and I'm like, yeah, like. I'm always going to want to do that. I might like you know, scale it down a little or change it or be, yeah, like I said, uh, think about things differently. But I, I want to be that for my child as well. I want to be that parent that is an example of 100%. following your passions and doing your love and not not take other people's opinions of what you should be doing at this stage of your life. You know, oh, you're a dad now. You, you know, you've got a mortgage. You've got a child. You've got to pay school fees. Blah blah. You shouldn't be going out there this risky behaviour. I'm like, no, nah, I think if that's what makes you tick and it's what you're passionate about you should never like close the door on it you know you obviously evaluate differently but you know I could yeah I want, I want to be the example that don't don't take society's view on things that now you're at this stage of your life you shouldn't do this or you know you're getting old you've got to look after your body differently like you know you can't get injured I'm like I don't know I don't want to fall into that trap of thinking that way you know I want to be 60 and still chasing you know that adrenaline rush and do it. Sure, it's gonna be look different to what it it looked when I was 21, but I still want to be like living life to the fullest and doing things and um, and be that example for my daughter to live life to her fullest, whatever that may be, you know. But just don't don't fall in the trap of believing what other people view is, yeah. is the right way to live their life, you know. I love to hear that, mate. It's so good to hear. Yeah. I'm gonna let you go because you're down here for a jiu-jitsu seminar today. Yeah, doing um, a nogi seminar at, at Life BJJ, which is going to be a lot of fun. So, it's good yeah. to hear, mate. Yeah. Before we go, I want to almost get a bit of Richie Vass wisdom for the young, uh, you know, especially for the young fellas out there, because you've spoken a lot today about, 
you know, your transition into manhood and the lessons that you learned, mm. along with all the great, there were some harsh lessons there and lessons you probably hope that if you could teach someone a little bit before they got or went down that path um, to sort of avoid it and to understand some of the big things you've learned in your life. Is there any advice or wisdom you have for the younger fellows who are finding their feet? Yes, it's such a hard one too, you know, because <clears throat> I think um, there's no greater teacher than experience, you know, and I can tell young blokes, and I truly believe, like, you know, that, that going out and getting into fights is it's, um, it's such a backwards mentality. I, I grew up thinking that's what it was, to, that's what you got to do to be a man, and that's what you got to do to prove that you're growing up and that you're tough and whatnot. But I think being tough is being true to yourself, and and um, and, and yeah, living life according to that, you know, that yeah. Because I stemmed away from that. I know that I had great parents and they gave me a great upbringing. And I, and I knew that I was things I was doing weren't right when I was doing them. But I was tricked into doing them by myself and by, you know, a victim of being, you know, peer pressure. It's it no one's fault but myself for doing those things and getting into trouble. And, and you know, these, these repercussions, you know, to that and, you know, people that are hurt by it, you know, which I, I'm still, you know, you know, still very sorry for. But as a young bloke growing up, I think... Um, that's a huge thing is to not be fooled into doing things to impress others that may not be true to yourself, you know what I mean? And and growing up and thinking that being tough is is to get on the piss and get into the blue, you know? It's, it could be further from the truth, you know? Anyone can do that, you know? Anyone can be a pork chop, get drink, get on the drink and have a fight. It's, it's, it's nothing tough now at all. But being tough is, yeah, putting your hand and say, all right, I'll, I'll get on the mats and compete in a jiu-jitsu tournament or I'll get on the field and play football, you know, and try to try to achieve a certain level of that or get in the ring and if you want to if that's what you want to do they're the environment you do it in and, and you know if you want to try to prove you're tough and and uh yeah and, and i think tr staying true to yourself is a big takeaway you know what i mean that it's it, trying not to be a victim of that peer pressure and and, and impressing people the wrong way you know if if that's how you want to do it um there's plenty of ways to do it in, in a you know walk into a gym and get involved in any kind of martial arts and now there's plenty of avenues, avenues there to to, um, it, uh, to prove yourself in that regard if you want to, and, and also don't be, don't let fear, yeah, um, sort of get in the way of of your dreams and goals. You know, fear is a great uh, motivator. It's a it's a great teacher. It's there for a reason. But yeah, the the biggest sense of a call, the be the best feeling can often be just on the other side of that fear. You know what I mean? If you can just uh, work with it. Uh, acknowledge that it's there and, and uh, still achieve what you want to do, it's uh, it's amazing. So don't let the, the fear of something, because the fear is often, you know, the thought of something is much is much the lot worse than the actual doing doing what it may Couldn't be. You know, I've sat there plenty of times when the waves are big, thinking of all the you know possible you know, uh, negative outcomes or scenarios that could happen, and uh, and you know, your heart rate goes up and you're terrified, and you go out there and, and none of that happens. You know what I mean? And you're so shitting yourself on the rocks about things that may or may not happen. That you almost talk yourself out of it and you get out there you get the best way of your life and realize none of that what was running through my head on the rocks actually even happened so it's the same whether i you know for a fight this guy's gonna you know he's gonna fucking knock me out or he's yeah. gonna break my arm or all these crazy thoughts you know they're they're a lot crazier than the actual event itself so don't let those those, those thoughts of fear um yeah stop you from trying to trying to achieve what you want to because i've i've been in that situation and uh yeah, so like I said, some of the best moments of your life are just on the other side of that fear, so, yeah. Yeah, what a good bunch of takeaways. <laughs> Fight the fear. To be tough is to be true to yourself. You heard the man himself say it, that some of the greatest lessons in life are on the other side of fear, but also taught through experience. And if experience is the greatest teacher, then the experience is the greatest pod. So get behind it, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so yeah, much for tuning in, as always. Richie, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. What a story. And yeah, thanks for having mate, me. Mate, very on. appreciative of you taking the time out of your day and, and coming down to be a part of it. And, and what I meant by that experience as the biggest teacher is like, um, and, and I've seen this happen many times, I've, I've sort of sat down with kids who are getting through a bit of trouble and, and trying to tell them through my experience what happened and I try and not let them go down that path. Unfortunately, um, uh, it takes their own experience for them to realise that, you know, and, yeah, and then they turn around and get, oh, you know, what you're saying was true. And uh, I wish I, yeah, that's why uh, yeah, you sometimes nothing can, can actually make that penny drop than, uh, than experience. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it has to be, has to, 
go down that road, but I'd love for people to take takeaways and uh, take something away from this to have them not go down that and not have to have a you know a, a negative experience and, and have yeah things you know, spin off the back of that which are, aren't always as positive. So yeah, experience. Here we are. We're on the experience, and um, yeah, it's the uh, last biggest best teacher, I think. Yeah. Mate, well, without doubt, there'll be at least one, or if not a good few that listen to this today and, and there'll be plenty of takeaways. So very appreciative for your time. Thanks, Richie Vass, ladies and gentlemen, all of his links, descriptions, tags will be in today's show notes. So make sure you go get around this guy, get around everything he's doing and, and continue to support him, but also the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Take care.